Hello, and welcome to The Premise. I'm Jennifer Thompson. Today, I'm excited to bring you an interview that I conducted a few weeks back with an author who was brought to us via Zoom from Warwick's Books in La Jolla. Enjoy. Hey, how are you? Okay, we are live um, with Warwick's. Um, This is a virtual event with Elliot Ackerman. Thank you, Elliot Ackerman, for being here. I, t- I was telling him in the green room earlier when we were talking before this, I'm so thankful, Jennifer, that you're doing this conversation because to say I'm a huge fan of you, Elliot, is an understatement. Your writing is just unbelievable and I just cannot wait for this conversation. I thank you so much for being here with Warwick's. Um, to- enough of the gushing with the fangirl here. <laughs> Let me give you a little bit of what's going to happen today. Again, it's Warwick's. We are a... Um, the store is located in La Jolla, San Diego, California. Somebody asked that was watching earlier from somewhere else and they were like, where is Warwick? So we're in San Diego. We are actually open for business. So you can come and browse with us at the store. Um, any way that you can get a book, you can get it from Warwick. You can come to the store, you can order online, you can call us, pick it up, we'll ship it, we'll do whatever you need to do. Um, tonight's event will um, be a conversation between Jennifer and, and Elliot and I will be putting in the comments field how you can order the book from us. Um, I always, you know, us independent stores, we need um, we need those book orders. So um, please, if you're going to order the book, order it from Warwick's. Um, and then you can also ask questions as we go through the uh, the conversation. I'll be prompting you through Facebook to ask some questions in the comment field. So that's it for me. Let me introduce you to Jennifer Thompson really quickly. Jennifer Thompson is a personal branding expert, digital marketing strategist, and host of The Premise Podcast. She is an award-winning author and speaker who delivers strategy-rich content and actionable tools that educate and empower authors. She and her husband, Chad, co-founded Monkey See Media in 2004 and have been creating award-winning book cover designs and author websites ever since. They specialize in author services that integrate digital marketing strategies and engage readers all over the world. She is co-founder of the San Diego Writers Festival, serves on the board of the San Diego Memoir Writing Association, and is currently writing her own coming-of-age memoir. So with that, Jennifer and Elliot have a great conversation. Thank you so much, Julie. It's a pleasure to be here. So today I have the pleasure of speaking with Elliot Ackerman, who, as you know, his latest novel, Red Dress in Black and White, is now available. He is also the author of Waiting for Eden, Dark at the Crossing, and Green on Blue, as well as his memoir, Places and Names on War, Revolution, and Returning, which was published last year. His books have been nominated for the National Book Award, the Andrew Carnegie Medal in both fiction and nonfiction, and the Dayton Literary Peace Prize. His writing often appears in Esquire, The New Yorker, The Time Magazine, I'm sorry, and Time Magazine, and his stories have been included in the best American short stories and the best American travel writing. He is both a former White House fellow and a Marine and served five tours of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan where he received the Silver Star, the Bronze Star for Valor, and the Purple Heart. He divides his time between New York City and Washington, D.C. Hello, Elliot. Thank you so much for joining us today. No, thanks so much, Jennifer. It's great to be here. Yeah, this is a pleasure. Um, I have to say, I loved your book. Absolutely loved your book. Um, 
it was very, I have to say that it was very uh, surreal for me reading it. Um, I was immediately swept away and fell in love with your characters. And I read it in one day. For me, it was surreal because as I'm reading your book, which takes place in Istanbul after the Gezi Park protests in 2013, the Black Lives Matter protests are happening right here in America with similar stories of police brutality and tear gas and rubber bullets. At one point, I'm literally immersed in the Gezi Park protests in your book, and I can hear helicopters and sirens blaring outside my own home. So it was kind of a crazy, surreal experience. Your book came out on May 26th, which is also the same day that the protests started here in America. I, I can imagine this was surreal for you. Yeah, I mean, certainly that was a little bit uh, serendipitous. Um, right. But, you know, at the same time, I look back and I feel like there. So it's definitely serendipitous. I mean, this is a, an enormous moment. Um, but I think if we look back at the last decade, I mean, there's been so many around the world of these types uh, of moments of uh, dissident movements and of societies uh, that are in crisis and thus going un undergoing real upheavals. Um, you know, and that is very much kind of you know thematically where the book is anchored. This idea of uh, not only societal upheaval, but also, you know, upheaval in, in people's personal lives and how when you enter these crises, what quickly gets kind of laid bare uh, is the architecture of mm -hmm. not only society, but again, of, of, of people's lives. And so this, the book is also, so it's the story of society, a society in crisis, uh, but also really a, a family in crisis as well. Yeah, people in crisis. It mm -hmm. really brings it home. I think it's an important book. It came out at a really good time for America. I hope Everyone reads it. Let, let's talk about the title, Red Dress in Black and White. Can you talk about the photograph that inspired this title? And was it also the inspiration for writing the book? Um, the So the photograph refers to the iconic image from the Gezi Park protests, which was of a young Turkish woman in her 20s. And she was walking to work uh, one day of the protest. And she basically stopped to kind of take a look around. This was early days. And she's wearing a red dress. And over her shoulder is a white tote bag. And a police officer is pepper spraying her right in the eyes. And there's sort of a sweep of her black hair that kind of obscures her face. And yeah. that became the image out of Gezi Park. Um, but what the novel sort of presupposes is one of the key characters in the book is uh, a man named Peter. And he is a photojournalist, although he's trying to make the transition from photojournalism to fine arts photography. Mm -hmm. And so the book fictionalizes the idea that Peter is also there at the moment to see the woman in the red dress. And he also takes a photograph of her. Um, however, Peter's photograph is taken in black and white. Right. And you get to know him, sort of understand how that, the resonance of that for him. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and also, you know, how many of the other characters in the book, uh, how their lives are also profoundly affected by those, those protests. Yeah. Did you see that photograph and decide you were going to write about it or how did that come to no. mind? So, you know, I lived, so I lived in Istanbul where the novel is set for about three years. Uh, and I, at the time I was, I was working as a journalist and I was covering the war in Syria. Um, mm -hmm. And most of the journalists were either based out of Istanbul or Beirut who were covering the war. Um, but as much uh, chaos and conflict as was going on in Syria, there was equal civil strife going on in Turkey at that moment. And I arrived in the months immediately after Gezi Park. Mm. And I could just see uh, amongst all of my Turkish friends how profoundly Gezi still 
resonated in their lives and how there were still these just tremors and aftershocks, not only societally but with, with, with what was going on in the in, you know, political life there, you know, although, you know, there was still a big shakeup, but just personally, you could see how it really touched people, touched their lives, affected sure. their personal relationships. And so for me, the book came out of that idea of, of, uh, and it's what I sort of often do in my writing. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm trying to describe a society through very intimate relationships. It's sort of the idea of, you know, maybe the best way to describe a beach is by describing an individual grain of sand on the beach. Mm, well said. Well, you're in San Diego. You should get that right. I am in San Diego. Yeah. Reading this book felt a little bit like putting together the pieces of a puzzle, which don't occur in chronological order. It felt yeah. a little bit like espionage too, as I was putting together the pieces. And I started, which I'm sure you intended, I started to marvel and I wondered about your writing process. And, you know, did you know exactly where the pieces were going to fit when you were writing it? Or did you write it and then kind of shuffle them around to fit? Um, so like, so the book opens and I knew what the, I know, I knew the opening scene. I sort of knew the opening line and who a couple of the key characters were, you know, the opening scene is you see this woman. So this woman, Catherine, who's one of the key characters, she's an American woman who has been married to a Turkish, uh, he's a man who's a Turkish real estate developer. And they met when he was studying in the United States and she moved to Istanbul with him and her marriage is not going well. They have a young son who's adopted. Uh, and over the course of one 24 hour period, Catherine decides she's going to leave her husband and she is having an affair with Peter, the photographer I mentioned before. Um, and so the book opens with her taking her son to a exhibit of Peter's photographs, which is a real provocation to her husband. And she knows mm -hmm. it's going to precipitate a very large response from him. And so his response initiates the 24-hour period that is her trying to get out of the city. And then the book toggles between this present tense 24-hour period and there passes a couple over about eight, eight plus years um, to include mm -hmm. many of the events, events at Gezi Park. And I think what slowly becomes revealed to the reader is how events around Gezi Park affect uh, Catherine's life, Peter's life, Marat's life, all of these characters, and they start to realize the way they're all bound up with one another. So that when right. Catherine rocks the boat personally, uh, it affects many, many people in unexpected ways. In much the same way, you know, an event like Gezi Park or an event like the protests we're seeing in the U.S., you know, they shake the society and suddenly we're looking at our society anew and seeing connections where we maybe never saw connections before. Yeah, absolutely. But I wonder for you, like, did you shuffle the pieces around a bit or did you pretty right. much know the order? I I knew I knew generally the Pete the order and I kind of had to make it fit. But I say that I knew the order and that as the book was laid out, I sort of knew what had to happen next. Um, and I know I'm not giving you like the the most direct answer uh, <laughs> because it's sort of to me even it's a mysterious process. All I could get to the city journal is like when I go down and I sit at my desk, you know, each day to do my writing and I'm working on a project. It's sort of like I am. It's like I'm reaching into a bag. And I'm pulling out a puzzle piece and I'm describing the puzzle piece. This puzzle piece has a round side. It's got a flat angle. This is what the puzzle piece looks like. This is the puzzle piece. And I put it down on the table. That's like a day's worth of writing. And so I show up every day and I'm just kind of describing these puzzle pieces one after another. And you know what? I'd be lying to you if I didn't say that sometimes two or three, four months of writing will go by and I just got like a big pile of puzzle pieces. 
<laughs> I start to see how they all kind of fit together. And those are the moments that like, you know, are very exciting for me. Yeah. Uh, so the process of writing this book was kind of having the faith that, you know, I'm invested in these characters. These characters are working. I understand who they are and their motivations. Uh, and then I start to see connections um, that surprise me. Uh, and, you know, and they're oftentimes, you know, joyful for me. And, you know, just as someone who writes books. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a writer myself. So yeah. I, as I was writing, I was just like, how did he get all these pieces together? And they're just so beautifully woven right down. I mean, every detail seems like it's so very strategic. And I wonder if they just sort of came along like the title, you know, mm -hmm. red dress and black and white. It's so perfect. It's based on that iconic image and, you know, of these protests that are happening in Gezi Park. And here, here's the title. Um, sometimes things happen like that where it just sort of falls into place. But I also think that it's all coming from, you know, up here. I think our characters kind of create themselves, right? Oh, yeah, they, they do. Um, and, you know, I always used to hate it when I would hear writers talk about how their characters come alive and do things. But, like, they really do. It sounds they do. Funny, but they really do. Um, and I've shown up to, I'll show up to work some days and I'll think this is sort of where the story is going and it will surprise me because it will go in a very different direction because it has a logic all of its own. And then, you know, as you go back through a story you've written too, you start to find, you know, you start to find connections. Um, and, mm -hmm. you know, and that, that's sort of the, the, the joy of it as well is understanding how things fit together because your subconscious writes a great, I find my subconscious writes a great deal of the book as well. Um, totally. I, yeah. So I have to see those connections. Yeah, yeah, and that's the the part about putting those puzzle pieces together. Yeah. You know, I want to talk about one of the unlikely characters in your book, um, the city of Istanbul. It, it to me, it was as much a character in this book as any of the human characters, mm -hmm. and I, I found myself wanting to visit Istanbul. You brought it to life in such a way that it was so intimate and authentic. And I was reading it, I kept stopping and saying, "Oh my God, he must live here! Like, there's no way someone could write about a city so intimately if they weren't intimately." involved with that city and the nuances of that city and the people who live there. And so you just mentioned you lived there for, for several years. When you, were, when you were living there, did you know you were going to write this book? And in fact, were you living there when you started writing it? Um, I was living there when I started writing the book, but I wasn't living there. I was back in New York when I was finishing the book. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I very much wanted uh, the city to feel like a character in the book. In mm -hmm. some I wanted the reader to feel the same level of emotional investment they would feel toward the city as they might feel, or toward a character as they would then feel about the city. Um, I think Istanbul is one of these great cities. Uh, it's a world city. Like it, it, it belongs to all of us. And there are a number of cities like that. I would say, you know, Rome is a city like that, the eternal city or Paris, or, you know, in the United States, I feel like kind of maybe New York city is that one city that we have. That's like, it's the, it doesn't belong just to Americans. It belongs to the whole world. Um, sure. And, uh, and Istanbul is that way, you know, it's a city that's had, you know, three names, Byzantium, Constantinople, Istanbul, and it wasn't always Turkish and it wasn't always Ottoman. I mean, it was mm -hmm. Roman, you know, so, and it probably won't always be Turkish, but there will always be people who live in that city because of its geography. And it has those many, many layers. And I think the characters in his books similarly are, are layered characters. Um, and, uh, you know, I didn't want to create sentimental characters and i also didn't want to necessarily create just a sentimental look at the city because it's also it's a hard city like it's 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 a it's a gritty place uh to yeah to very beautiful but very gritty yeah I, I totally got that i was there with you so thank you yeah thank you 
That absolutely worked. Yeah, I was like, this is such a beautiful character and it's a city. And I don't think I've experienced a character so well developed in a, in a place, you know? So that was really wonderful. Um, you reference a real life portraitist in your book, Yusuf Karsh, who in your book is described as someone born during the Ottoman times in the Armenian city in the Southeast, um, grew up during the genocide. His sister died of starvation and the Turks drove him from village to village as quoted from your book. It's clear that every day, every detail in your book is strategic. And I, I wonder how you came to choose Karsh. Was your motivation that you simply liked his work or was it more his struggle with in his life, the sort of mirrored the struggle that was happening in Istanbul during the, the Gezi Park protests? It's a little bit of both. You know, he is, um, I mean, for any, anyone who's not familiar with Karsh's work, he was, you know, one of the great portraitures, uh, portraitists of the 20th century. Uh, took photographs of everyone, JFK, MLK, Churchill, you know, the, there's a very Hemingway, famous way, Hemingway, yeah. Hemingway the turtleneck, that's Karsh, if you've ever seen that photograph, uh, that photograph. Um, and he was this guy who like, came from nowhere. He was a Kurd from Mardin, which is in, you know, really, I've actually been there, very, very poor, but very historic city in southeastern Turkey. I'm um, sorry, not a Kurd, he's Armenian. Um, so uh, persecuted people, uh, peoples in Turkey, but he is, you know, one of the most, probably the most well-known Turkish photographer that exists. Uh, and so Peter, who's very much sort of wrestling with, and photography is a theme in the book, he's sort of wrestling with this idea of not only his artistic identity, but the idea of trying to create something that feels permanent. Mm. And Karsh creates his sense of permanence by, you know, photographing very, very famous people in a, in a, in a particularly distinct way. So I think yeah. I want to juxtapose Peter to a photographer like Karsh, who in some ways is very staid and his subjects are very static. Um, but then, yeah, as you noted, also make, you know, make some commentary and a nod to the fact that sometimes, you know, the people who uh, live their lives contrary to societal norms are the ones that make the greatest impact on it. Uh, and the people mm. who his work, that's, that's sort of the case. And I also like his photographs. I think they're, I think they're beautiful portraits. It's hard not to, isn't it? Yeah. You know, speaking of Peter, if you don't mind, I'd like you to read an excerpt from your book mm -hmm. on page 72, if you don't yeah. mind. And then I'd like to ask you a question about that. So we're... Um, so this is Peter is talking about his uh, his work and kind of what inspires him uh, and what he's been thinking about with this series of portraits that he is doing all around Istanbul. And he's got a, a grant to do these portraits from a woman named Chris, Kristen, who works in the uh, works at the consulate and she is uh, works in the cultural affairs office. And she's American. So there's an old political theory I'm interested in, explained Peter a holdover from the Cold War. The Western powers called it the strategy of tension. They would at times support leftist terrorist attacks, propaganda, and even radical politicians in order to keep their right-wing allies under threat. A society in crisis, one that is gripped by tension, can be more easily manipulated and controlled than one that's stable, or so the theory goes. 
Mm, I loved that. I read it a couple of times. I was like, oh my gosh. So let's talk about the strategy strategy of tension. Yeah. I love how this theory is woven into the work of your character, Peter. And at the same time, it mirrors the tension and the plot line in your book. Yeah. Can you talk about the deeper meaning of this section? And if this was always your intention or if Peter's work evolved to embody this theory during your writing? And you know, very early on, I knew this idea of the strategy of tension was going to be in the book. And it's the idea of all of the hidden ways that we are connected to kind of hold ourselves um, in stasis, you know, all the aspects of our life, you know, like when you think about, or I think about, I'm just going to drop everything and move to Paris for two weeks or, you know, for, for 10 years or whatever, all the things like, well, I can't do that because of this, because of this, because of this, because of this, you know, even if I could afford to, like, these are all the things holding me in place. And sometimes those are good things, things we love, our children, our family, you know, but they're also hidden things. And I think that that is the, when I say the architecture of our life, that's the architecture. And mm -hmm. so Peter is trying to, through juxtaposing photographs and images with one another, kind of show how people work against each other in a society. Um, and he says, you know, I'm trying to reveal in photographs the, the hidden connection, the strategy of tension between two groups of people. So he like, you know, one of his examples is he photographs the local imam but he puts that photograph next to the guy who is drinking, you know, rocky alcohol and smoking a, a shisha pipe to kind of show that juxtaposition. And I think we see this in many ways in any society, um, you know, the way that we kind of need our antagonists and our, and our antagonists give us meaning, um, even though that meaning is often, is often hidden. Let's talk about antagonists for a moment. So, as I was reading, I, I never really felt like there was an antagonist in this book, like, you know, the traditional kind. Someone yeah. might say it's Marat because Catherine is trying to escape her husband and escape the city. But I got the feeling that the struggle, that the state was always the antagonist. Uh, who would you say was the antagonist? There isn't one. You know, I, you know, ultimately I try to, I try to write the types of books that I enjoy reading and the types of books I enjoy reading are ones where you get to the end and, you know, you're kind of just sitting there thinking with the book that has left you with lots of questions and you're not sure how you're supposed to feel about all the characters because um, they're complex and they're not sentimental. And I hope none of these characters feel sentimental. I think each of them is complex. Um, I think each of them, you know, they're like a character like Marat, you know, who's this real estate developer, sort of craven, you know, business obsessed. But, you know, you get to know him and you realize one of the reasons he's craven and business obsessed is because, you know, his father was a real estate developer who really struggled to support the family. And, uh, you know, and then you also learn that Murat, when he was in the U.S. studying, you know, he wasn't studying business. He was studying architecture. And that was the one concession his family made for him. But he comes back and he's wrapped up in the business. So he's never really able to express himself that way. You know, but at the same time, he doesn't want his Catherine, his wife. First of all, he's limited in himself and what he can offer his wife. And he doesn't want her to leave because he loves his son and he doesn't want his son to leave, but he's mm -hmm. a very imperfect father as he tries to manifest that love. So I just bring that up. I bring all that up uh, because he's like all of us. I mean, we're all imperfect. Yeah. We I, totally I are. Um, yeah. So, um, so, you know, so when I'm, when I'm drawing the characters, you know, I don't think there is any, like, there's no villain. I think villains are boring. I think you're seeing a bunch of people who, 
have their redeeming qualities, but are also broken in their, in their certain ways. And you just kind of understand as a reader how they're all wrapped up in one another. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, he was actually one of my favorite characters. I was very sympathetic to him. I, I, he really came to life for me. And, you know, you bring out the human condition in all of your characters so well and the city too, for that matter. But, you know, I just always felt like they're just trying to find that thing that drives them. They're trying, they're looking for meaning in their life. And Marat was, you know, so sympathetic in that way to me because he was the one who was carrying the biggest burden in a lot of ways. So Yeah, well, he was really a, a like beautiful Kristen, character. Who, there's a character like Kristen who works at the consulate. And I think for, you know, for much of the book, you know, she's presented as like having her act together kind of more than everybody else. Mm-hmm. Don't give anything away. But I think as you move yeah, on. Yeah, don't the, give anything away. <laughs> might not, like that profoundly might not be the case. <laughs> right. You never know. You never know. <laughs> well, and you do lead us like there is that's like the, the espionage of the puzzle pieces coming together. I'm like, oh, that just happened. You know, things came out of nowhere, which brings me to my next point. So you were in the CIA for a short mm-hmm. amount of time, right? Yeah. A couple of years. Okay, I might throw you off with this question. Mm-hmm. It's totally unrelated to your book, by the way. Did you ever hear a story about a power ballad called Wind of Change? by the Scorpions when you were in the CIA? No, but I'm going to have to Google it. I love power. Yes, I love power. you are. <laughs> okay, so many people say that the song, Wind of Change, by the Scorpions, became the soundtrack of the peaceful revolution that swept through Europe. And according to some fans, and this is the investigation at the heart of a podcast called Wind of Change, the CIA actually wrote that song. And in an effort to bring about the end of the Cold War. So you haven't heard this? I was hoping maybe we'd get some information from you, but No, I haven't I haven't I haven't I haven't heard this. But um when I when I worked there, one of my instructors once said, you know, if we were 10% as good as people think we are, we'd be really, really good. <laughs> Well, I've been listening to this podcast and I keep thinking about you and I keep thinking about red dress and black and white. And it's just like so perfectly released your book with so many things that are happening in America. But look it up and our viewers will will look it up too. Wind of change. Wind of change. So um, I'm interested in your inspiration for the gender politics that appear in the book. The queer community and the transgender women play a large part. And at one point, there's an article referenced in your book that goes something like this. Among those who struggled for their rights, the toughest men were the transgender women. I want to know a little bit more about this. Was this actually happening? And during the protests, where did this come from? You know, that's factual. That one of the things when Gezi Park erupted, it, it, caught a lot of people and Tur- a lot of, you know, Turkish Turks off guard. Like they, you know, there was discontent, but then, you know, the, the massive outpouring and even the people who are, you know, the people who went out and marched themselves sort of were surprised. Like, yes, we have to go do this. Um, but the, the real vanguard and the shock troops, um, you know, was the gay, lesbian, transgender, transsexual community. Cause that was a community in Turkey and in Istanbul that had been suppressed by the authorities for so long. Wow. So, when you know so in the early days they said you know the, the you know again the 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 toughest men up at the, at the barricades were the transgender women um mm-hmm. because they had the most experience going up against the police um mm-hmm. so the opening scenes of the book you know peter peter's exhibit is a series of photographs uh that he took of protesters from that community during Gezi park um so that mm-hmm. one is 
from the headlines. Wow. Wow. See, again, everything is woven in so perfectly. I, I got to ask you, did you always want to be a novelist? I know your wife is a novelist. Your mom is a novelist. Is this something that was always in your future? Um, you know, my, I mean, my mother is, so my mother is a writer, so it didn't seem like the weirdest thing and that I grew up, like I knew writers and I saw her life. Um, but I had this eight year, 10 year in, uh, the military and intelligence and did not know then that that was where I would ultimately do. Although I suspected maybe someday I would write, but kind of as I got to the end of my time there and wanted to, you know, transition, I was like, I think I'm going to do what's next. Uh, writing made sense to me and I thought I would make, uh, make a go of it, but, uh, yes, mm -hmm. We are sort of a writing family, as it's well. Yeah. 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 May I ask, who is your wife? Oh, uh, Lee Carpenter. Okay. Uh, her most recent book was uh, Red, White, Blue. She wrote a novel called Eleven Days, and she's a screenwriter. Mm. Uh, she recent Her most recent film was an action film uh, called Mile 22, directed by uh, Pete Berg, starred um, okay. Mark Wahlberg and John Malkovich. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Have you guys ever thought about writing a book together? No, we haven't. I wouldn't be, I mean, I wouldn't be against it. She's my first, she's my first reader. Um, <laughs> uh, not yet. She does a lot more. I do kind of, I write novels and do journalism. She writes novels and uh, does a lot of uh, screenwriting work as well. Yeah. Can we talk about what you're working on next? Sure. So the, um, well, the next book I have out is going to come out in March of 2021. And it's actually, it's a little bit of a departure for me. Um, mm -hmm. It's a work of speculative fiction. And I've written it uh, along with a guy named Jim Stavridis. Uh, Jim Stavridis is a retired four-star admiral. And his last job was he was Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, which is like the head of NATO. Wow. And uh, the book uh, is a speculation of what it would look like if the U.S. and China went to war in the year 2034. Mm -hmm. And so the book is aptly titled 2034. So, um, so it's, a, it's sort of, it's a fun book, kind of a, broadcast of international characters, you know, a female American admiral, a Chinese admiral, a Iranian colonel kind of told on a very big global setting. Um, so that will be out in, uh, in March. And it was, I had never collaborated on a book before. And so that was sort of, you know, new and fun for me. Um, but you know, that's in, that's, already being copy edited. So, uh, you know, my next, it's out there. Yeah. Yeah. My next, yeah. Books I'm working <laughs> they are kind of my like secret, top secret, you know, super secret projects. Um, you know, my, my bag of puzzle pieces as it were. Can you write more than one fiction piece at, at the same time? I usually don't, uh, no, you know, I'll have a novel, you know, I'll have a book I'm working on an idea that I'm working on and, uh, and I kind of stick to one at a time, although I can, I can write, uh, you know, journalism and commentary contemporaneously. Um, sure. Yeah. From part of my brain, but no, I yeah. feel like, you know, to write a novel, you sort of, at least for me, I sort of have to kind of enter a fugue state where it's like, almost like I'm kind of dreaming while I'm awake, um, for it to start to work. And it's difficult to do that with a couple things at once. Yeah. You can't really go out of that space. If you're writing I two can't. things, I, mean, yeah. I think there, I know there are probably some writers who do and have done successfully, but I can't. I mean, you know, one of the things that's you know interesting about you know being married to another writer is you see how they work, and she <laughs> works very differently than I work. She's a beautiful, beautiful writer, but totally, I am same time. I'm at my desk grinding it out every day. You know, <laughs> some days are good, some days are bad, and she you know, she won't look like she's working for a while and she'll be doing other things and taking care of stuff. And, 
and she's sort of writing in her head and then she'll sit right, down yeah. day, write 10,000 words or whatever it is. And so for her, it's sort of more this act of just transcribing what she's already figured out. Um, so I think, you know, everyone kind of has their different way they go about it. Yeah. I call that time staring out the window. Yes. So you're exactly. staring out the window or you're taking a shower or you're running, but really you're writing. Yes. I all up here. I, uh, I think most of my things, I would say they're like breakthroughs in my work. If I look at them, typically happen while I'm exercising, or I mean, you know, not to be too weird, like while I'm while I'm in the shower for whatever reason, like I will have to totally, shower. yeah. <laughs> Why is that? What it is about exercising in the shower, but yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Well, I have to say this has been awesome. I I did want to ask you one more question before we close, and then I think we're going to open it up. My husband is a photographer and the way you write about photography made me wonder if you're, if you're a photographer, are you a hobbyist photographer or not, have I, you I been a photographer? My, my iPhone here. Um, I'm not, but you know, I have known and, you know, as a journalist, I have spent lots of time with photographers that have you know, shot stories that we've worked on together. Um, and spend, you know, and I and I and I enjoy photography and collect some photography. Um, so that was sort of where I I drew um, a lot of the writing about photography, you know. And I think too, there's sort of a you know, there's a continuity that exists through all art. You know, there's parts totally. of you know, some of the some of the parts where I'm writing about photography are things where I feel like it's similar to you know to just any any art form. That, that you're that you're toiling at. So uh, I think there's a line in the book where Peter is telling William, the young boy, he's playing around the camera, and he says, you know, sometimes you've got to take a hundred bad photographs to get a single good one. And then later he says, sometimes you can also just take a hundred bad photographs. And uh, I loved that line. <laughs> I wasn't thinking about photographs when I wrote that line. I was thinking about pages. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a first draft of your book that you hate? Because you know they always talk about the um, the bad first draft. Does this happen for you? Yeah, it's not that you. Well, let's let me do that. I have I have things. If you were to go on my laptop, I have sort of a graveyard folder in my laptop of things that just sort of never coalesced. So mm. they're bad draft. I mean, they didn't work. Some of that work has found its way into other books, parts of something that I liked, but the whole thing wasn't congealing. Um, I think you get through the end of a first draft, and you're you know you're trying to wonder if it's if it's any good uh, and how you make it better. Um, so I'd say I've rarely finished a first draft of something and been like, you know, touchdown. All right. This is amazing. I sort of, you know, I'll look at it and I'll think about it and hmm, like, does it, does it, is this good? And um, so, you know, I've, I've certainly, I've certainly felt that way a lot. That's good to know. That's good. To yeah. Know. Oh yeah. It doesn't just come out genius. You, you, you oh, work at it. <laughs> God, and then you got to publish it. That's the worst. It's <laughs> good. Well, I absolutely loved this book. I mean, it was brilliant. It's it's a beautiful piece of literary fiction, but it also makes you think. It takes you to a city that you may not ever get to go to in person. So I hope people will buy this book from Warwick's and really enjoy it like I did. And again, I read it in one day. I like sat down in the morning and I read till I was done. It was awesome. Thank you. So thank you for writing this book. Yeah. I think that's one of those things that um, an author either loves or hates to hear, right? It's like, you've written this book that's taken you so long. And then it's like, somebody says, I read it in one day. In one day. <laughs> it's, it's better. It's better than like, yeah, it took me like two and a half years to finish it. <laughs> 
Totally. Yeah. That's true. And it's just like, and I always love the, what do you know? It's like, you're releasing a book and it's just like, what are we going to, it's like, no, can we talk about this one? I need to talk about this book. Um, we just had a couple comments. Uh, Jennifer, speaking of your husband, he was commenting today on this, which was really funny. Um, he said about cars, um, was said to have snatched the cigar from Churchill's mouth right before taking his famous photo. Make angry. Okay. <laughs> exactly. Get that angry face. That's and then awesome. he also, when you were talking about um, the 10% of, if you were, when you were in the CIA, if you were 10% as good as you, they thought you were, he, he commented that that's exactly what an agent would say. <laughs> <laughs> so, Thank you, um, Chad. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Chad's good for his comments there. Um, and when you guys were talking about, you know, the, the characters that are in this book and then also um, in ways waiting for Eden, mm. which is just, oh my God. And there, there is not a person that I put this book in their hands that doesn't come back to me and just thank me for putting this in their hands. Oh, it you. is a tremendous, um, so we're here to talk about this one today, but do yourselves a favor and get this one too, because it is just an absolutely, but you, Elliot, your writing of human intentions is just, that's the one thing that is you know, everybody's got their faults and they're, they think they have good intentions and not so much sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> um, Susan is commenting. He is great. Speaking of you, I'm um, talking about craft, the story. She enjoyed this. Um, and she's going to go get the book. So she said this was a very interesting um, discussion today. So we thank Susan for joining in. Um, in this time of this, you know, you have um, done you know, lots of books, releasing a book during this time has had to have been talking about speculative and surreal, a little different. Yeah, it's been surreal. It's different, but it's, you know, there, there are pros and cons. Um, you know, I mean, obviously the con is I like going out and I like meeting readers and I like meeting booksellers and, and you know, and meeting new ones and seeing the ones that I already know. Um, so for me, it always feels like kind of like a, you know, a nice homecoming when a book comes out. So I've missed mm. that. One of the things that's been nice is, you know, sort of how we're doing events now. You know, you touch a lot of people. Um, you know, I did an event today at noon, you know, in with my Italian publisher, which I would never nice. have been able to do. And then Great. when this book came out early on, one of my, uh, I did an event with one of my Turkish friends who's a journalist in Istanbul. Um, so, I, you know, you wouldn't have been able to do uh, the same. So, you know, what I hope is that we can all get through this time and then we can do it the old way again and do some of the new stuff too. Cause I think we sort of like discovered, you know, that it's, it's probably nice to do a little bit of both. It is. And it's in what I have found is that the new way is actually more intimate than you think it's going to be, you know, you think it's a really sterile kind of thing, but it turns out to be, um, I think people are a little less uptight than when they're standing in front of a, an audience and things. That's so true. I think that there's a, um, a, a familiarity that comes across when we do some of these things, um, That's virtually. True. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so before we close out with you, which I'm like, not happy about, but maybe you'll <laughs> You'll have to, when we're all ready to travel, please come to San Diego. Please come to Warwick. Um, love to host you at the store. But do you do any social media as far as if people wanted to follow you? Are you commenting on anything that's happening? Sure. I'm on Twitter. I think I'm at Elliot Ackerman and Instagram. I'm Elliot.Ackerman. So, yeah. Those are you two? Okay, perfect. And then, Jennifer, we can find you in the premise at... 
Yes. So this is going to be on our podcast, The Premise. You can follow us at Pod Premise for Twitter. And you can also listen thepremisepod.com is the website URL. And also excellent. on San Diego Writers Festival.com. Okay, excellent. Well, it was a great conversation. Um, thank Elliot, you. thank you again for being here. Um, I cannot wait for 2021 for another book from you. Sounds like it's going to be a, a departure, but your writing is... It's a, fu- it's a fun book. It's a fun book. Yeah. yeah. It Can't sounds wait. terrifying to me. It's well, it sounds like it might be, it sounds like it actually like, might happen, which is the yeah, terrifying like, part of it. Characters are really fun. They're colorful. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, I'm thinking of that part of the future, that may not be as speculative as we think it might be. <laughs> sadly, sadly not. <laughs> well, I'm going to take us off of Facebook. Everybody have a great evening. Again, you can get Red Dress and Black and White at Warwick's. And Elliot, thank you for your time. Yep. Got to have it out there. All right. Thank you, everybody. Much. Bye. Hello. Thank you for joining us today. This has been a Warwick's sponsored interview. Until next time, stay safe.